guys and welcome back to Duralex Setlex. I'm Anna. I'm Alyssa. And today we're going to talk about the Nuremberg Trials, a legacy in international relations and international law. So in this episode, we're actually going to talk a bit about the background and how it actually, like what happened, what, what was the major event that led to the Nuremberg Trials. Um, and then we're going to go a bit into the background. How was the tribunal actually established? Who were the people that were primarily convicted and of what they were convicted for? And then we're going to talk about the trial's importance in international law and also in international relations. So, yeah, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode with us and let's jump right in. Just to give everyone a heads up, this episode mentions suicide and other very violent acts during the Second World War, so listener discretion be advised. Okay, so let's start with a little bit of a history recap on this part, because, I mean, most people probably know about the Nuremberg Trials, and you've probably learned about it in history, but just so everyone's on the same page here. So basically, all started with World War II, infamously Adolf Hitler, everyone knows him and who I'm talking about. He started a very far-right party called the NDPAD, or the Nationalsozialistische Deutsche Arbeiterpartei, which was supporting Nazism and fighting against communism uprising after um, World War One, which was very present. And back then they were very much calling it like a threat from the East, which was a time just after the Wall Street crash of 1929, um, which put most of the world, including Germany, in an economic decline, obviously leading many individuals to turning to alternative parties wanting for their problems to be resolved by those alternative parties. And Hitler was able to really much like capitalize on this public discontent, allowing his party to become the majority party um, in the German parliament, the Reichstag, in 1932. Um, and then shortly after 1933, Hitler actually became the chancellor of Germany and not soon after, a Dutch communist set fire to the Reichstag, who was then kind of used to paint this image of that all communists are the enemies of the German state and the enemies of basically everyone. He very much used that as well to like gain like momentum and kind of pull people towards his side. So in 1934, um, just after the death of the German president at the time, um, Hitler used his unchecked legislative power to actually combine his role with that of the president. And then he used Article 48 of the German constitution to kind of make up the fire decree of the Reichstag um, to pass that through parliament, which was de facto abolishing civil liberties such as the freedom of speech and yeah, many other things. Also, I think media freedom, all of those things. So Hitler then slowly began to crack down on any oppositional parties. Um, he prohibited Jews from not working and then kind of World War II commenced as we know it. So not soon after that, Germany actually invaded Poland and many other nations. However, by 1943, the Soviet Union, UK and the USA pushed back and soon came up with the creation of the United Nations, the D-Day invention, and they started dividing Germany in four core sectors, each occupied by one of the like major world nations and also France, which was also an allied power. It also soon became evident that the grave effects of World War II actually had happened on a mass scale, which many people, funnily enough, didn't know about. So the mass deportations then happened to concentration camps in Poland um, for anyone who did not meet Hitler's ideologies, most notably Jews and also Romani people, but also 
many other individuals who had other ethnicities, religious beliefs, political or sexual orientation, and they were all sort of put into these concentration camps and mass deported out of their countries because they did not meet other people's requirements of what was deemed being okay or being normal. So throughout World War II, Hitler and the Nazi regime escalated beyond discrimination and facilitating these unlawful incarceration, forced labor, medical experimentation and genocide of these people. During this time, Hitler's regime um, murdered a total of 17 million people, including 6 million Jews. And this is what led to the Nuremberg trials, because how can you possibly punish individuals which were at the top and directly committing these war crimes? And how can you punish individuals from another sovereign country where the, those crimes were not deemed to be illegal? So this was kind of a big question that was posed, because before this, an international tribunal had never existed before, and there was no way of holding these people accountable besides either letting them go or killing them. But those weren't really satisfactory ways of dealing with the situation, and they kind of wanted to have a new way of going forward and being able to punish those crimes and being able to like set an example for maybe future situations that were to come and kind of cracking down on them as a whole. So then the London Charter of the International Military Tribunal was um, established, which laid down four different legal codes of the USA, UK, USSR and France and combined them into one military tribunal. And they primarily cracked down on crimes against peacekeeping, crimes against humanity, war crimes and conspiracy towards uh, crimes against peace. And that's how the Nuremberg trials began as we know them. The city of Nuremberg was chosen mainly because its palace of justice was relatively undamaged by the war and included a large prison area as well. One additional reason was that the city had been the place of annual Nazi propaganda rallies and therefore by holding the trials there it would mark the symbolic end of the Nazi regime. The tribunal was given the authority to find any individual guilty of the commission of war crimes and to declare any group or organization to be criminal in character. If, for example, an organization was to be found criminal, the prosecution would bring individuals to trial for having been members and the criminal nature of the group or organization could no longer be questioned. A defendant was entitled to receive a copy of the indictment, to offer any relevant explanation to the charges brought against him, and to be presented by counsel and confront and cross-examine the witnesses. To talk about procedural organization of the tribunal, we have to mention that it was comprised of four legal codes, which resulted in the following organization of the court. The court had defense and prosecutor attorneys, like in the common law system, representing the US and the UK, but decisions and sentences were imposed by judges, as in the civil law systems. It was the first time that an international tribunal sentenced an individual to prison or to death, and this therefore set the stage for later innovations like the ICJ, the Universal Declarations of Human Rights, and the two Geneva Conventions. But let's talk a bit about evidence. When the trial started, prosecution was afraid that there will be a massive lack of evidence that the criminals were responsible for the atrocious crimes of World War II. However, the Nazi regime documented almost everything. In terms of how much evidence they actually had from this trial, they found 47 crates of binders, weighing about 1,400 kilograms of party records and kilometers of film. The tribunal decided not to prosecute every person ever involved in the crimes, but rather the men who created the system that led to the Second World War, which amounted to about 24 military officials. 
For example, Wilhelm Frick was one of the criminals judged in the Nuremberg trials. He was the Minister of Interior during the Nazi regime and the co-author of anti-Semitic laws imposed in Germany before the war. He was found guilty and sentenced to death, as well as Ernst Kaltenbrunner, who was the highest-ranking officer tried at Nuremberg. He was the chief of intelligence, Gestapo, and the criminal police. He was also found guilty and sentenced to death. Out of the 24 trials, we have to mention the three special cases. First of all, Martin Bormann was a Nazi party secretary. He was absent at the trial, therefore he was found guilty in a sentence to death in absentia, so basically the trial went on without him. In 1972, it was actually discovered that he had died a few days before the world had ended, but his body had never been identified until then. The second special case is Gustav Krupp von Bohlen und Halbach, who was a major industrialist during the Nazi regime, producing almost everything for the German army from boats to tanks and much more, basically all of the artillery and machines. He was found medically unfit for trial and passed away in 1950 without sentencing. Lastly, Robert Ley was the head of the German labor front, holding also many other high positions in the Nazi party, and he believed that he should rather be shot than be condemned for his crimes before a tribunal. Therefore, he committed suicide in his cell a few days before receiving his indictment. But let's talk a bit about technicalities and proceedings. There was one major organizational problem regarding the trial, the language of the proceedings, because the people involved in the trial spoke French, German, Russian, and English. In order to solve this problem, IBM came up with the system of simultaneous interpretation, which is actually still used today. In order to explain a bit how this works, basically interpreters translate what is being said while it's being said, so in real time, and then everyone can listen to their translation in their own native language through a live headset. Each of the four countries provided a prosecutor and a team of experts. Defendants were able to be represented by a lawyer, so obviously they chose the best German lawyers they could have found. For example, their lawyers were so good that Admiral Karl Donitz, head of the German Navy from 1943 onward, who even briefly succeeded Hitler as the head of state in May 1945, was actually only convicted to 10 years in prison. He was indicted because he had ordered his submarines not to help survivors of any sinking ship, letting them drown in the Atlantic Ocean, therefore being in violation of the London Naval Treaty. He was saved by his lawyer, who presented evidence that the USA had infringed the treaty in the exact same way during its war with Japan. Therefore, his lawyer managed to reduce his sentence greatly and convicted him to only 10 years in prison. The main defense of the accused was the nulla pena sine lege principle of law, and it means that there is no punishment without law. You cannot be convicted of an act if the law didn't consider it illegal before the time of the commission. Therefore, the Nazi officers argued that German law at the time provided for the legality of their actions, so now they couldn't be sentenced for something that they deemed to be legal at the time of the mission. However, this was quickly rejected by the prosecution. They used natural law reasoning in order to circumvent the principle in their favor and argued that even if this principle is a general principle, it is not a fundamental principle, therefore it could be deviated from in certain cases. And also, the atrocities committed by the Nazi officers were so bad that they could not justify just following orders. 
The prosecution argued that they should have known better than to commit such heinous acts and that some crimes are so incredibly immoral they should not require a precedent. The Nazi officers also used other defenses, first of all, saying that they were just following orders, to which the prosecutors responded that men who commit crimes cannot plead as a defense that they committed them in a uniform, and that military men are not above and beyond the moral and legal requirements that apply to others, incapable of exercising moral judgment on their own. And the second relevant defense that they used was the victor's justice, that the winners of the Second World War were applying a harsh standard to crimes committed by the Germans, but leniency to crimes committed by their own soldiers. There was one accused who achieved leniency through accountability. His name was Albert Speer. He was a German architect who served as the Minister of Armaments and War Production. He took personal responsibility before the tribunal for the crimes he and his country had committed against the many people in the concentration camps and not only. Although he was responsible for ordering the deaths of hundreds of thousands of slave laborers, he was only sentenced to 20 years in prison. There was a person that was actually acquitted altogether. His name was Hjalmar Schacht. He was a prominent banker and economist in Germany, having served as president of the central bank and economic minister. He was an important figure before the war, but he had lost all his power by the time the war started and even been in contact with resistance leaders. He was put in a concentration camp following the assassination attempt on Hitler because he had allegedly had contact with the assassins that were responsible for the incident. Therefore, he was acquitted altogether when the time for the trial came. But let's talk about passing the judgment. So, time-wise, the judges took two days to determine the sentences of the 24 trials. There were 12 people sentenced to death, aside from the ones that we already mentioned, Hans Frank, Governor General of Occupied Poland, Alfred Jodl, who signed the summary execution order of any enemy military without any trials, Joachim von Ribbentrop, an ambassador to the UK and later Minister of Foreign Affairs, who was responsible for a treaty dividing Poland between Germany and the Soviet Union, Alfred Rosenberg, Minister of the Eastern Occupied Territories, Fritz Sokol, Head of the Slave Labor Program, Arthur Seiss Inkvar, Commander of the Occupied Netherlands, and lastly, Hermann Göring, the Commander of the Air Force, de facto Head of the Economy and original Head of Gestapo. He is actually a very interesting case as he committed a last act of defiance by committing suicide the night before his death sentence by taking a cyanide pill that was in his medication bottle. Aside from the death sentences, there were seven prison sentences. Aside from the ones we already mentioned, Walter Funk, the minister to economics, received life in prison but was released because of health issues. Konstantin von Neurath, the Minister of Foreign Affairs, who received 15 years, also released early because of ill health. Erik Reder, the Commander-in-Chief of the German Navy, who received life but was released early as well. Baldur von Schirach, the head of Hitler Youth Division, received 10 years in prison. And lastly, Rudolf Hess. He actually had fled to Scotland back in 1941 to discuss a possible peace treaty with the British. However, he was in prison when he got there, so he did not participate in many atrocities following 1941. However, he was still sentenced at Nuremberg for life in prison. Out of the 24 defendants, three of them were actually acquitted altogether. The one we already mentioned that was actually part of the resistance, Hans Fritsche, a radio commentator and head of news division of the propaganda ministry, whose crimes were not considered to be severe enough and was sentenced to nine years in prison at a different trial, 
And lastly, Franz von Papen, Chancellor and Vice-Chancellor of Germany, who was also an ambassador in Austria and Turkey. He was acquitted at Nuremberg and only served two years later in a later trial. Two of them were left without a decision. The one that committed suicide before the trial and the one that had actually died and was judged in absentia. There were also subsequent trials between 1946 and 1941, basically following the trial of major war criminals, which is the main Nuremberg trial judged by the International Military Tribunal. There were 12 additional trials which were also held at Nuremberg. The Nuremberg trial was the one for the worst offenders, but there were other trials in order to convict people who were guilty of less grave crimes, such as the doctor's trial, which were accused of crimes against humanity, such as medical experiments on prisoners of war, the judge's trial, which were charged with furthering the Nazi plan for racial purity by implementing the eugenics laws for the Third Reich, and also other trials dealt with German industrialists accused of using slave labor and plundering occupied territories. These were different from the first Nuremberg trials due to the fact that they were conducted before the US military tribunals and not the international military tribunal because the four allied powers no longer got along as well because of the start of the Cold War. Of the 1,672 defendants throughout all 12 trials, 1,416 were found guilty. By the end of the trials, nearly 200 German war criminals had been executed and nearly 300 were sentenced to life in prison. But you might wonder, like, this is all great and we talk about the history and what the trials actually are, but how are they actually important? So I'm going to quickly talk about how their importance phased international laws we know today. So basically, the Nuremberg trials established that all of humanity would be guarded by an international legal shield and that even a head of state would be held criminally responsible and punished for aggressions and crimes against humanity, which was not like that before. And this has never happened before. An international tribunal like did not exist before the Nuremberg trials were held. So the right of humanitarian intervention put a stop to crimes against humanity. And even by a sovereign against his own citizens, like this principle gradually emerged from the Nuremberg principles affirmed by the United Nations later on. So the importance of the trial, it actually came up with the whole concept of international criminal law as we know today, because it was invented through the International Military Tribunal. And then um, the saying kind of emerged that Alyssa mentioned earlier, um, which means that there is no punishment about a crime, but she she said different earlier. It's, it's both the same, it's just different variations of the same principle. So even though this principle um, guarded international criminal law, many scholars actually had differentiating opinions and said that the principle was non-binding in certain instances where crimes were already deemed as morally wrong. So there's kind of this... There used to be anyway just debate about if the principle is even applicable all the time or not. So that's obviously a very interesting debate. Then the Nuremberg trials also established the United Nations Genocide Conventions, which is an international treaty that criminalizes genocide and obliges state parties to enforce this prohibition. And it was the first legal instrument to codify genocide as a crime and the first human rights treaty unanimously adopted by the United Nations General Assembly. Um, it also furthermore established the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which is obviously a key international document adopted by the United Nations General Assembly, which lays down key rights and freedoms of all human beings, and it's very much used today in all sort of facets of international law. 
It also laid down the Geneva Conventions, which are four treaties and three additional protocols that establish international legal standards for humanitarian treatment in war. Furthermore, it also established the Nuremberg Trials, which are a range of principles and guidelines of what actually constitutes a war crime. And lastly, it laid down the Convention on the Non-Applicability of Statutory Limitations to War and Crimes and Crimes Against Humanity. But let's talk a bit about their importance in international relations as well. Most important consequence of the Nuremberg Trials for international relations was the impact that they had on state sovereignty. Because of how horrible the acts of the German state were during the Second World War, the Allied powers, namely the US, the USSR, France and the UK, had to intervene not only to stop the war itself, but also to punish Nazi officers for their crimes. It was the first time in history that states got to decide on the crimes committed by and in another state, so France, Germany, the US and the USSR judged the crimes of the German criminals of the Second World War, despite Germany being a sovereign nation in its own. Moreover, it brought cooperation between the Allies, although that didn't last long, as we know, because of the Cold War. Other mentionable firsts of the Nuremberg Trials are the international control over domestic policies of Germany, the criminality of national organs of Germany, and the first unmistakable instance of compulsory jurisdiction by an international court involving more than routine matters of international relations. Okay guys, so this was our episode on the Nuremberg Trials. Thank you for paying attention and sticking by with us. And we look forward to having a new episode for you guys and preparing really, really interesting stuff in our next session. So make sure if you have any kind of requests, any kind of ideas, suggestions for us, just mention us. You can DM us on Instagram at DuralexSedLexPod. One word, DuralexSedLexPod on Instagram. Um, and also just before we end the session there's actually two like if this topic piqued your interest in any way and you really want to like learn more about it or have some sort of insight into some real cases that actually happen some real life stories there's um, a range of really good books by uh, I think her name is Heather Morris The Tattooist of Auschwitz is a really really interesting book and then there's a follow up book as well called um, Kilka's Journey And I think there's also a third book that came out really recently in 2021. It's called Three Sisters. They're based on true stories and they really very much go into the concentration camps. And then the second book very much goes into the Gulag camps and in Siberia, where many people from the concentration camps that were seen as working with the enemy, falling under those clauses, um, were put. So, um, yeah, if that's something for you, I, I personally read both books. Um, the third one I'm yet to order. I haven't had time yet to read it yet but the first two books were really really interesting and i can very much recommend them so uh, we'll see you in the next episode bye guys